From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Months after they fled Afghanistan, thousands of refugees remain in temporary housing on U.S. military bases. We'll talk with a Marine Corps reservist and district attorney in Colorado who's been helping them out about what life is like now and the ongoing challenges. Then, Eddie Gallagher was the epitome of a Navy SEAL. He was charismatic, tough, a battle-tested leader. His SEAL Team Alpha returned from Iraq in 2017 as heroes, having hunted ISIS in urban combat in Mosul, and Gallagher its shining star. However, something much darker was lurking. The grain of truth is that ISIS fighter was killed by us, and nobody had a problem with it. And later, what is a history professor from CU Boulder's lifelong dream? This is Jeopardy! As you enjoy the gifts of family and friends during this holiday season, all of us here at Colorado Public Radio would like to thank members, businesses, and volunteers who are such a vital part of the work we do every day. Colorado Public Radio wouldn't be able to do what it does or be here for you without you. Thank you for being part of the Colorado Public Radio community and on behalf of listeners all over Colorado, thank you for your support. Happy Holidays. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. Months after they fled their country, thousands of Afghan refugees remain in temporary housing on U.S. military bases across the country. Local District Attorney John Kellner, a Marine Corps reservist, recently returned from Fort Pickett, Virginia, where he helped refugees waiting to move to more permanent homes around the country. John, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me on, Nathan. You volunteered to serve as a liaison between the nonprofit organizations helping these refugees and the military that runs the camp's day-to-day operations. What's a day like for a refugee family at this facility? I'd say it varies quite a bit depending on when a refugee family arrived at uh, Fort Pickett or really probably any of the different safe havens that we've set up across the country. If they're new arrivals, you know, they've got some, some in-briefing, some onboarding, if you will. They've got to find out where they're going to be staying on these old bases, oftentimes in sort of World War II era barracks that have been converted to you know, house children and families. Uh, they've got to go through things like legal briefs, uh, understanding some cultural expectations, and then you know, how to apply for special immigrant visas, how to really meet the requirements of their parole status in the United States, and, and get settled in. And once somebody gets through that initial in-processing to include vetting and medical processing, life settles into a bit of a routine. They're provided food, obviously, every single day. And then we have a a series of engagements that change uh, depending on the day of the week. We try to provide physical activities for people to have an outlet. And we try to provide educational activities, especially for the young kids uh, learning English and and getting started in that regard. So it's, um, it's a bit of a day-to-day change, but uh, no doubt it's challenging for them as they make that transition. Yeah, and you mentioned English as a second language. Are, are the men and women in separate classes when they're learning uh, to speak English? Yeah, that's a good question, Nathan. Uh, they are. You know, men and women are typically separated in those kinds of classes. Uh, you know, understanding that there's a big cultural divide, uh, especially depending on where you are in Afghanistan, I'd say, you know, Kabul, it's a much more metropolitan kind of feel. Um, culturally a little more 
uh, akin to the United States, but folks that are coming in from Afghanistan are coming from all over the place. And they're coming from a very patriarchal society. And I think we found that women tended to be more open and more engaged uh, in their learning process and, and you know, taking on English when they were in separate classes. And the same went for, for men as well. And, and then we were doing separate classes even for children too, but they were combined boys and girls. So it's, so it's not the sudden cultural change when they arrive on American soil? Certainly hope it's not. Um, yeah. As you can imagine, I mean, they're there for several months. There's still you know, tens of thousands of Afghan refugees who are waiting to be resettled throughout the United States. Um, and so it's a long road for them. You know, some of them have been there since uh, you know, late August at Fort Pickett, at least, and will remain there for a few more months, potentially, as they, they wait to be resettled. But while we're there, you know, while they're getting acclimated from the Marines, from the non-government organizations, from really every three-letter you know, federal agency that you can imagine is there, we're trying to model the behavior that they could expect to see from Americans when they, they leave that resettlement location and go to wherever their, their future home will be. So they're not shocked, hopefully, by uh, yeah. you know, cultural expectations. Sure. The Afghan government fell apart really quickly. The U.S. evacuation was strained, uh, putting it mildly. Dozens of Afghan civilians and 13 American service members died in a bombing outside the Kabul airport in those final days. Are those you dealt with dealing with this trauma, and how are they dealing with this trauma? Yeah, there's no question that the, the trauma of the exit it's impacted really everybody. Um, you know, I volunteered, you mentioned that earlier, because I saw the same thing everybody saw on TV. We saw Afghans falling out of airplanes and desperate to leave. Um, and we lost a bunch of great service member, uh, a lot of good Marines as well. And so when the opportunity came up to to do something and hopefully honor their sacrifice and help these folks transition to the United States, I took that. But they're dealing with that trauma too. You know, some of the people that arrived had bloody clothing. You know, they, they came with just the clothes on their back. Some of them had a bag, maybe one bag, but it got lost in transit and we're trying to reunite them with that. But they came leaving everything behind. Um, some of them were you know, practicing attorneys, uh, doctors, obviously, you know, people that are well-established in their society and they're starting over. So aside from just the, the physical trauma, the, the chaos and the danger they went through, there's the fear and anxiety that goes with, what is my life going to be like now? And, and um, you know, they're carrying that in different ways. And you know, we see it from some of the kids, of course, you know, uh, sort of traumatic aftermath, you know, when it comes to things like nightmares at night and, and uh, parents wondering how to handle things like bedwetting that hadn't been happening before. And we're really fortunate to have great people there, you know, teaching the Afghan guests how to handle that, how to recognize those issues, and you know, hopefully to support their kids. Yeah, and I understand that that a lot of the refugees had to leave family members behind. I mean, are they still in touch with their relatives in Afghanistan? I'd say one of the most heartbreaking things that you hear about from this whole ordeal are the, the Afghans that are here saying, Hey, what about my husband or what about my wife or my family members, or my child, uh, somebody that didn't get on a plane and wondering if we're going to go back and get them. And, and we have to tell them that the hard answer is, 
you know, that's not uh, something we're doing, at least, you know, where I was. And they're getting calls. I mean, they're getting text messages on, you know, texting apps from people claiming to be Taliban saying, hey, we've got your loved one here. Uh, if you don't come back, we're going to kill them. And so they're dealing with that, that pain and those tough decisions there. I mean, that has to be tough, not just only to, to see, but to, to help these refugees through that. I don't know if there's a good answer for it. I mean, how do you help somebody through something that is truly life or death situation? Um, we try to provide them what we can as they're coming to America and try to provide them an opportunity here. And, you know, that's kind of the extent of what we were able to do on the ground. You know, those bigger picture questions of how are we going to handle things like that? As a country, that's well above my pay grade, that's for sure. Right. Well, 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 of course, the U.S. was in Afghanistan for 20 years and left pretty abruptly. How were the refugees you talked to feeling about the United States? I characterize their, their, their emotions oscillating between you know, extreme gratitude and then at times frustration because you know, frustration and bitterness and they're happy to be in a place where they're, they're safe at least safer. They don't hear RPGs going off at night. Um, you know, there's not AK 47s in the distance, but on the other hand, they had to leave, like you said, just so abruptly um, that many of them are, are frustrated at the way things went down, as you can imagine. And then they're questioning, you know, why am I at uh, this camp or wherever it is across the country as they're waiting to be resettled in their minds. many folks believe that, Hey, the United States is this grand, glorious place, and we are an amazing country with incredible capabilities. But in their minds, they're thinking, well, we're just going to arrive and we're going to move on. And yet it takes time. And so we have to actually really counsel them on this is going to be a lengthier process. The resettlement process itself, I mean, we are trying to move tens of thousands of people very quickly into new communities across the country. That's a system that is not built for that kind of volume, hasn't seen that kind of volume in many, many years. Um, and so it's stressing you know, our, our agencies, basically, and resettling folks. And that time they're taking is just, it's weighing on them. And, and that's not even including the pandemic that we're dealing with right now, which I bet adds a whole other <laughs> sense of issue there. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, in true military efficiency, the first thing that happened when I arrived was they gave me a booster shot in one arm and a flu shot in the other. Um, and as you can imagine, part of the, the processing for these Afghan refugees is medical screening and making sure that folks are um, you know, vaccinated and frankly, doing testing. The CDC is there uh, testing folks really all the time, uh, making sure that you know, those camps are safe because that's something you're always concerned about at a refugee type camp is, you know, sanitation uh, issues and making sure people don't have uh, communicable diseases that can spread across like wildfire. We were very fortunate. The staff at Fort Pickett was amazing. The medical staff was incredible and we weren't having those kinds of issues. Are there folks you met there whose experiences stick with you, maybe a, a particular person or family that, that really made a, an impression? Yeah, there, there's definitely a few. Um, and, you know, I should caveat everything I'm saying right now. 
Nathan, that um, I'm speaking as myself, as an individual. I don't represent the Department of Defense or the United States Marine Corps in any way. Um, and I can say this, the people that I, I met blew me away with their resiliency. Uh, I met folks that were, as I mentioned before, an attorney who's wondering, hey, I've got this law degree. What's going to happen? Do I have to go back to school? Uh, how can I get credentialed? Same thing with medical doctors, people with incredible backgrounds and education and you know, knowing that they're going to have to kind of start over again. Um, and, and that's really tough, but they're still grateful for the opportunity to be in the United States and, and frankly, raise their kids in a place that you know, presents them with so much opportunity. But the things that stuck out to me the most were our toy distributions. We had just so many people across the country, and I, I cannot uh, stress this enough, that the people of the United States of America who showed up and continue to show up to make the best out of a bad situation to help these folks um, warms my heart. It, it should make everybody in our country proud. We had people donating books and toys and cold weather clothing, and then nonprofit organizations showing up to hand out this stuff, uh, to get Marines involved in that process too, and to see a smiling face on a little kid in a new winter coat with new mittens and new boots, getting a toy and a book. Um, I'll never forget that experience and, and their expressions. Your district attorney for the 18th Judicial District, your, uh, your biggest counties are Arapahoe and Douglas, south of Denver. Um, now that you're back here in Colorado, will you continue to try to help refugees? Absolutely. Um, you know, we've seen stories, I think even just yesterday, about more refugees showing up in our communities. And there's all these great nonprofits, like Team Rubicon is one that was at Fort Pickett. Uh, they have a presence in Colorado, in Denver, uh, great organizations. They showed up to basically manage our donations and make sure we knew what was coming into our warehouses and then getting it out the door um, and getting to the Marines who would then distribute it to folks. And they're here locally. You know, they're helping uh, people get set up in apartments with furniture. Uh, that's an organization I'd love to plug in with and uh, just keep on you know, helping these people who were there for us that helped us accomplish our mission, kept uh, service members, Marines safe overseas in Afghanistan to continue giving back to them. You were in Afghanistan in 2010 at the height of the surge. Um, knowing that being in that country, what do you think is ahead for Afghanistan and its people? I think there is no such thing as a new Taliban. You know, I think we're, we've seen that already. You know, the, Taliban is what they always were, a murderous regime. And we're already hearing reports of, you know, not just drought, but uh, a lack of food in Afghanistan. I think they are heading towards uh, incredible famine. I think people are looking and we're expecting to see uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people die. I mean, you're seeing a country now where you see the reports or hear about uh, people selling their children into arranged marriages and they're 12 years old and really sexual servitude, sexual slavery uh, to try and provide food for the rest of their family. That's what Afghanistan looks like, I think, in the near term. It's bleak. Hmm. On that note, we do have to leave it there. John, I really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much, Nathan. I appreciate you uh, highlighting the importance of 
you know, helping our Afghan allies welcome them to the United States. John Kellner is district attorney for the 18th Judicial District, including Arapaho, Douglas, Elbert, and Lincoln counties. Eddie Gallagher was the epitome of a Navy SEAL. He was charismatic, respected, tough, a battle-tested leader. His SEAL Team Alpha returned from Iraq in 2017 as heroes, having hunted ISIS in urban combat in Mosul, and Gallagher was its shining star. However, beneath Gallagher's swagger and bravado, something much darker was lurking, something that would shake the Navy and its elite SEAL teams to their cores. That's the premise of the new book, Alpha, Eddie Gallagher and the War for the Soul of the Navy Seals. Its author, David Phillips. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning national correspondent for the New York Times and lives in Colorado Springs. David, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Your book is a meticulously crafted look at Navy SEAL Team Alpha and its leader, Eddie Gallagher. To set things up further before we go on, some listeners may know Gallagher as the Navy SEAL championed by former President Trump, who, after Gallagher was accused of war crimes and acquitted, stepped in to reverse the chief petty officer's demotion by the Navy. We'll we'll get to those suspected war crimes here in a bit. But David, can you give us a picture of who Eddie Gallagher is, because for many, many years, many people he worked with saw him as a hero, the perfect Navy SEAL, right? This is a guy who basically had had spent his entire adult life fighting the war on terror. He uh, enlisted in the Navy shortly before 2001 and deployed again and again and again, Afghanistan, Iraq, other places in the Middle East. And you know, by the time he was almost 40 years old, he had a reputation in the SEAL teams as someone who was you know, very experienced, very aggressive, a good leader. And he had several decorations for bravery under fire. And he always wanted to be in the fight, right? Always wanted to go to war. It was an obsession, to, to, to put it mildly. Well, I, I think within the Navy SEALs and other elite parts of the military, they really view their profession with a lot of pride. They see themselves as warriors, and they they want to do the job that's asked of them. Um, so, yeah, for sure, it was something that he was proud that he did. But I think it also probably had a, a serious cost. Yeah. So Gallagher rises in the ranks because someone he, he actually becomes someone who trains Navy SEALs, meaning he's grooming the next generation of this elite force, right? Uh, that's right. He was uh, a trainer, and then he eventually became a, uh, a platoon chief. So he was in charge of about 20 other SEALs who were sent on this classified mission to help in what was going to be one of the biggest ground offenses uh, since the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And that was the effort to take back the Iraqi city of Mosul from ISIS. I want to talk about those men, uh, SEAL Team Alpha. Uh, the team was made up of a number of men from different backgrounds and ideals, but they were all trained to be elite killers, right? They were trained to battle. Before Gallagher joined them as their chief, um, they weren't highly respected. Uh, th- their team wasn't as cohesive and-, and trained as other SEAL teams, right? Yeah, I think that when Eddie Gallagher took over as their chief, they were really excited because he had a great reputation and uh, he really... They felt focused on the things that mattered and not some of the bureaucracy that didn't. And so he very quickly, you know, working together with them, he was almost like the coach that took some talented people who had never had a winning season before 
and really coordinated them into a, an elite fighting force. And they were the best in SEAL Team 7. And so going into this deployment to Iraq, they really loved him. Yeah. What, what are some of the things that he did to change their, their trajectory? You know, it was just a matter of um, bringing everyone together and letting them know, hey, you know, if we work hard, we'll be rewarded. I will work hard for you. You work hard for me. Uh, he was both demanding and easygoing. And, and I think they really looked up to him. You know, Navy SEALs, what they want to do is is deploy to combat. They want to do what they're trained for. And Eddie said that that he would make that happen for them if, if they just worked hard. And, and they did. Yeah, well, and 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 that training begins to show, though, that Gallagher kind of sometimes takes cuts corners, sometimes does things outside of the chain of command, and, and things like that that may not be viewed as gold standard, right? C- can you give an example of, of how his men begin to think that mm, something's something's not right here? You know what, what's interesting? Is there's so, there's an idea that's baked into the Navy SEALs and a lot of other special operations troops that that. You are unconventional, and therefore, it's okay to do things unconventionally. Uh, you know, you don't necessarily, as a special operator, have to follow all the rules and regulations. And so, yes, repeatedly, they saw Eddie Gallagher do things that didn't make sense, um, uh, skip out on training or or um, uh, cheat to, to try and make, make it look like the, the platoon was doing better than it was. And in a way... That caught people off guard, but they thought, well, maybe this, maybe this is just how things are done. Maybe uh, this is working for us. Maybe this is, you know, how SEALs are supposed to do it. But he also started doing things that that really worried them because they had a lot of, of training leading up to deployment that was close quarters um, shooting practice, essentially. And uh, repeatedly, they'd see him seemingly not able to decide the difference between who is a civilian and, and who's a legal enemy. And, and he seemed to be shooting a lot of people in training that, that uh, you shouldn't shoot. And, but he wasn't getting in trouble for it. And so they, they couldn't figure it out, but it was working for them as a platoon that if Eddie's doing well, everyone's doing well. And so I think they kind of kept quiet. Yeah, and the success of SEAL Team Alpha in training won them that coveted mission to go to Mosul to hunt ISIS. Um, what did that deployment mean for Gallagher? It must have just, it, well, it, it bolstered his his view of, of being an elite soldier. Yeah, I, I mean, like I said, these guys, like, combat is their metier, and it's how they get cred- credibility amongst their peers. And so to get a big combat tour, like to go to Mosul, where there were thousands of, of ISIS fighters who were surrounded and were going to fight to the death, that... Most of us would want to avoid that, right? But for SEALs, that is, is uh, you know, the dream assignment. And so Eddie was very excited that he was going to get a chance to really practice his craft. And I think that the guys with him were as well. And they're a cohesive team. They are, they are solid. They're running together. They're doing things as they should. They're an elite team. They get to Iraq, and uh, things were not as they expected. They were well away from the fighting. Uh, between Iraqi soldiers and ISIS. Uh, how did that sit with Gallagher? He started doing things that, again, were a little bit questionable, right? According to the guys who deployed with him, and, and I should say that that uh, two of these SEALs are uh, grew up in, in Colorado and, and still live here. Um, mm-hmm. uh, according to the guys who deployed with him, um, you know, 
Eddie seemed fixated on, on getting action. And so when he didn't see opportunities readily pre present themselves, he would go out and find them and, and went farther and farther into gray areas and, until he was what they figured was well into the black. And what they saw is that, that he would set up in, in sniper hides daily and target people that they didn't see as even close to legal enemy targets. Uh, people going down to get water, uh, women and children uh, passing in the street, um, things that, that they were just aghast at, uh, and he kept doing it. On May 3rd, 2017, everything changes for the team um, and for Gallagher. It involves a captured teen who suspect of being with ISIS. He's been captured by the Iraqis, and he's in pretty rough shape when he's brought to the U.S. service members. What happened, and what does Gallagher do, and how does this change everything? This is sort of the center of this, this court martial that became a very big deal in the United States. So this wounded enemy ISIS fighter gets brought back to the SEAL team. And when he gets there, he's a very sorry sight. He's, it looks like he's been uh, wounded in an airstrike. He can't stand on his own. Um, he's, I believe, about 17 years old, rail thin. Um, and strangely, Eddie Gallagher takes possession of this, this captive from the Iraqis and starts performing um, medical care on him. His and that's something he doesn't typically do, right? He doesn't typically right. say, "I'm going to," you know, yeah, right. If you talk to his platoon, his platoon, you know, saw nothing contempt but contempt from him towards the locals, whether they were were uh, enemy fighters or not. And so here he is uh, performing life saving care on on this captive. And what he ends up doing, according to to several seals who who say they witnessed it, is. He performs a number of, of first aid you know, procedures, and then he pulls out a, a custom hunting knife he always carried with him, and he, he stabs the, the captive repeatedly in the neck until he dies. And that becomes the center of accusations from his platoon when, when they return home, because they're just shocked. You know, they have no love for ISIS at all. They have seen close at hand what, what that terrorist group could do to a civilian population, and yet to take a POW who is wounded and, and kill him for no reason goes against everything they believe of themselves and of the SEAL teams. And, and so they figure we've got to get this guy, Edward Gallagher, out of the teams. We've got to stand up and say what happened because, you know, it's a cancer within our organization. And, and if we don't do something, it'll just get worse. But from Gallagher's perspective and, and others uh, on the team, that's not the case. Uh, can, can you give us some of their perspective? I mean, how does Gallagher view all of the things that went down with his team during their deployment in Iraq? Right. So, so first, let me say that when this team returned to the United States, they turned in their chief to authorities. They said they had seen him shoot at civilians um, uh, and kill this captive. And Eddie Gallagher's response was, None of it ever happened. These are all lies. They're lies that um, these guys made up because they were cowards in war and they were afraid that I would tell everyone that they were cowards. And so they realized they had to take me out and destroy my credibility. And this is how they did it. Now, let me just say, just to uh, you know, give everybody the full picture, that when Eddie Gallagher uh, stabbed this fighter, he took a picture with the fighter afterwards, holding his knife in one hand and the fighter's head in the other hand. And then he texted those photos to uh, a friend of his in the SEAL team saying, good story behind this. 
I got him with my hunting knife. So in terms of a murder mystery, this is not exactly Sherlock Holmes. It's not even murder she wrote. What's more interesting is that there was really a lot of, of trouble for the, the seals who witnessed this in trying to turn Eddie in because there is a uh, very deeply loyal fraternity within the SEAL teams, as you can imagine. And in that team, you don't take you know the dirty laundry outside of the brotherhood. And so there was a, a real difficult time trying to get these reports of, of what's basically war crimes out to authorities that might actually be able to do something. And, and in 2019, a military jury did find Gallagher not guilty of a murder charge for allegedly stabbing that wounded teenager, as well as charges of attempted murder and obstruction of justice. But he was found guilty of posing for that photo with the corpse and, and sentenced to four months of time served. I want to leave that whole trial aspect to the book because you write about it so well. And it's so intriguing. But I, I do want to play a clip from the Apple original podcast called The Line. It's Gallagher speaking to host Dan uh, Taberski earlier this year about that day with the captured teen ISIS member. The grain of truth in the whole thing is that that ISIS fighter was killed by us and that nobody at that time had a problem with it. We killed that guy. Our intention was to kill him. Everybody was on board. Not one person was Your intention was, like, was to kill him. It was to do medical scenarios on him until he died. Is that nursing to death? Yeah, if you want to put it in a nice way. He nursed him to death. I, I know that, if that you want sounds to put like it in a nice an admission. Way. Yeah, that, that sounds... And that was after the trial, right? You know, what's interesting is, is Eddie Gallagher has made a number of public statements after all of this. And as you say, he was acquitted. Uh, and what he's always said as, it, as he started to tell more and more of what happened is, hey, everybody was on board with it. You know, I wasn't the only one who was doing these medical procedures. There were two, three other SEALs who were right down there with me. And what he never says is, by the way, I was the boss. Uh, I called all the shots here. I was the most experienced one. I could have controlled this whole situation. Uh, he tries to put all of the blame on everybody else. So if you believe um, him, and, and I think that there's a lot of, of evidence that we can't get into in the time we have that, that makes it difficult right. to believe him. Uh, but if you believe him, even then, he's essentially responsible for, for letting his men commit a crime. Now, now, obviously, you weren't there, but your descriptions of how the men looked, how they walked, what they were thinking, how they held themselves while in patrol is so vivid. How did you figure all this stuff out? I'm assuming you spoke to the SEALs. Did you speak to Gallagher? Did you did you see things and videos and all of that? So uh, exactly right. Uh, we gathered all material that we possibly could, you know, including uh, long interviews with a number of the SEALs, uh, video that was shot during the time, text messages that were being sent back and forth contemporaneously. I went to Eddie Gallagher and I, I asked him for an interview. And he said very quickly through his lawyer, no. Uh, but what was a gift is he's gone on uh, probably a dozen um, military uh, podcasts and talked for hours and hours and hours in a way that's much less guarded than he would have if he had actually spoken to me. And so I was able to reflect, I think, pretty well his thinking. But what I wanted to do, this is actually a story about Eddie Gallagher. Alpha is really the story of, of a bunch of, of men who went to serve their country in, in Alpha Platoon and, and 
had to deal with this very difficult thing, this thing that is is as old as time as itself, is how do you decide what's right and where loyalty really lies? And that can be really difficult, especially in war. And so the story of these guys who did the difficult thing, um, even though they knew that it might destroy them, I thought was really compelling and absolutely vital to tell, not only to the American public, but but to the Navy SEALs themselves. David, it's a fascinating book. We have to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. David Phillips, author of the new book, Alpha, Eddie Gallagher and the War for the Soul of the Navy SEALs. It's available now. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Stay with us. Running a restaurant was challenging before the pandemic. For the ones that have survived, COVID's made it even trickier. I'm CPR business reporter Sarah Mulholland. And I'm Ryan Warner from Colorado Matters. We'll bring you a day in the life of a restaurant, from the difficulties of finding servers and broccoli... To the juggling act of running a small business while raising a family. Your table is ready Monday at 9 and 7 on CPR News and KRCC. Jeopardy! is known for featuring the brainiest of the brainy. But this week, the TV quiz show upped its game by staging a professor's tournament. University of Colorado, Af- Colorado African-American history professor Ashley Lawrence Sanders is one of 15 higher education academics who competed. Here's host Mayim Bialik. The 1987 Montreal Protocol limits substances that deplete this in the atmosphere. Ashley. What is ozone? Yes. Dealing with the environment for 400. A 1997 UN protocol adopted in this Japanese city called for the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. Ashley. What is Kyoto? That's right. And Professor, welcome to the program. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for having me. You appeared on uh, Jeopardy! last night. You were answering those two questions, brought you back from a deficit uh, going into that. You had to keep the outcome of of the show secret until it, it aired, but can you tell us now how'd you do? (laughs) Well, sadly, I ended up with zero dollars. I had to wager it all to have a chance in the wild card. So I went big with the wager. But nevertheless, I was very happy with my performance, actually. Yeah. You also got a question about a city south of Denver, right? (laughs) Yes. I, I was very proud of answering that correctly as a recent transplant to Colorado, uh, and I was like, Centennial, it must be Centennial. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope, you know, I, I did the city of Centennial proud uh, that they were on Jeopardy last night. I, I love that when you were introduced, you mentioned that you have delved into theoretical history with your students <laughs> and a lesson focused on the zombie apocalypse. Tell us about that. Oh, sure. I, you know, I love chatting with my students before class, you know, before we get into sort of the nitty gritty of what we're discussing. And Uh, With one of my students, we were talking about zombie apocalypses and, you know, particularly Andrew Jackson becoming perhaps a zombie, being a very scary zombie, Uh, you know, a man who participated in dozens of duels. Uh, And then we're like, hmm, which presidents would survive a a zombie apocalypse? It was, you know, one of those great sort of fun moments that I, I like to have with my students just, you know, before class officially starts. Like Abe Lincoln, a zombie or something like that. Right. And there's all that whole series of that, too. So, right, you know, right. it's, it's funny to think about. Yes. So how, how are you chosen to be one of the 15 professors from around the country to be on Jeopardy? It's a pretty exclusive club. 
Uh, it was. I mean, I was very surprised. I interviewed, you know, just the regular way. I took the test. I took the in-person test. All this is on Zoom now. Uh, did the in-person audition. And I actually was not expecting to hear back from them because so many people audition. I think it's like 100,000 take the test in any given year. And I was hoping maybe to hear back from them. But two months later, I heard back from them and not only that I would be on the show, but that they were doing this new professor's tournament and they wanted me to be a part of that. Uh, so that's a really, that was super exciting, a little bit daunting to think about at first, like, okay, wow, I'm going to be with a bunch of other academics. Like, what is this going to be like? But it was actually so fun. Uh, <laughs> what an amazing group of contestants um, that were on the show. Just, you know, a very cool, very smart and very funny group of people. Yeah. You have a master's degree from Columbia University and a PhD from Rutgers. Does that kind of intellectual book learning help or, or, or does it hinder your ability to answer those questions with lightning speed, right? You know, we were joking that we think it may hinder it because, you know, the, the professors oh. have the joke more of a comment than a question, uh, <laughs> you know, that we overthink a lot of things. We're used to giving like complex answers to things, which may be to our detriment. Um, and I, you know, I think I was guilty of overthinking a lot when I was preparing uh, because I was like, wow, it must be more complicated than that. But Jeopardy is tricky. It's actually sometimes much more simple than you actually think. And they get you with the complications of the clues. But I think the ability to digest a lot of information is probably one of the benefits that professors have in a tournament like this. I've always wanted to ask this. I've never interviewed someone who's been on Jeopardy, but I want to, is the clicker thing, is that a big deal when you, you have to click the certain time in that clicker? Oh, it is the biggest deal. <laughs> it is the biggest deal. I don't think, you don't realize when you're at home that this light comes on and that's when you can click. It's not even, it's not during the clue. It's not even like after the clue is over, it's the light. So you have to pay attention to the light flashing and your ability to do that, I mean, I'm sure if you were watching me, you could see me like buzzing, 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 buzzing and not getting in. There were a lot of things that I knew, but I was just out buzzed. Like that is such a huge part of it. So when you're frustrated, when you think people don't know things, just know that many of us do know we're just not getting in the buzzer and you not can get locked on the out. Buzzer. Yeah, you can get locked oh. out also. Yes. My if you buzz in too early. The so. complexities of being a, a contestant in Jeopardy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I want to turn to your field of educational expertise. It's African-American history and Civil War memory. Yes. What, what does memory mean in this context? I assume it doesn't have to do with the kind of memory necessary to win a knowledgeable uh, trivia show, right? No, no, no. I, I look at sort of historical memory and cultural memory, and particularly how African-Americans by Black Americans remember and think about the Civil War. Um, you know, there's been a lot of news recently about monuments and, you know, Confederate flag in the last five to seven years. Um, and some of that is related to my work, but I specifically look at centering Black ideas around the war, Black meaning around the war, um, and Black-centered ideas around emancipation. So that's what I study is the, the Black historical memory of the Civil War. And, and you're working on a book, I understand, called They Knew What the War Was About, African Americans and the Memory of the Civil War. So this is all tied into that, yeah? Yes, currently writing and researching, uh, you know, and, and hoping to to get that finished soon. Um, yeah, this is, you know, that's the topic of my book. I'm very interested in how uh, Black memory functions and how it serves as an important part of Black activist movements um, and Black ideolo ideologies, you know, well into the near present. So we see the effects of that in our modern time. I'm looking at all the way back to during the Civil War and how Black people during the war were already forming their own meaning of what the war was about. And of course, how that, that meaning was challenged after the war, yeah? 
Absolutely. And how so many like dominant cultural institutions like the lost cause and, you know, white Southern memory starts to actually try to erase and to whitewash uh, that emancipation was the central sort of long lasting legacy of the war and African-Americans fighting to fully, you know, experience emancipation is what defines the black experience since the end of the war and how that sort of all ties into the war being this, you know, this sort of more radical, actually, event for Black life and Black history. Now, uh, am I correct? You've been teaching at CU for two years, is that right? No, I've actually just been at CU since August. Yes. Oh, okay. I was, yeah, I just arrived from another university where I taught for two years, and I came to CU Boulder in August. So I've been here a few months. This is my first semester. So were, were your students watching? I think so. I hope so. <laughs> they found out that I was going to be on Jeopardy from Reddit, uh, from social media Reddit. before you, I you did. didn't tell them. I was going to tell them, but then it got announced on social media and then Twitter and then Reddit picked it up. And then the day I was going to come in and say, I could tell everyone, my students already started emailing me like, Professor, I saw that you're going to be on Jeopardy. You're like, Professor, you're going to be on Jeopardy. So it's funny, you know, that that's how information travels in this information age is that social media gets it first before I even can get to my whole, you know, big class announcement. But they they said they would watch. I hope they did, because I did have that great anecdote from our class. So, uh, you know, they were excited about it. We had a little mini Jeopardy in class yesterday. So that was fun. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. And, and and I want to go back with what you're teaching, because I find it so interesting that that this is this this memory that you talk about uh, with the Civil War and, and how it all connects to everything. Um, are there future projects that you want to work on that um, tie into to what you're, you're looking at with the Civil War and African-Americans and, and the memory they have of, of Civil War? Sure. I mean, I want to expand sort of past the Civil War. You know, I think in the future, I want to look more at the South Carolina Low Country, which is where I'm from. Uh, and, you know, look at how, you know, black ideas about reconstruction and about Jim Crow have shaped, you know, some of the political and social landscape that still exists in those places today. Um, I think there's so many interconnecting lines because my work actually takes me across a lot of different eras. And in each era, I'm thinking, wow, this is about the Civil War, but this is also about so much more. Right. You know, this is about right. politics. It's about culture. Um, and I think that's sort of the great thing about studying historical memory. So I'm really excited, you know, in, in future projects to kind of just go back to all those interesting tidbits <laughs> that I'm discovering along the way and expanding on them in, in some future projects. I think um, uh, I hope it'll be, you know, this really interesting endeavor. I, I'm looking forward to it. So. And, and you've been on TV before, if I'm correct. You've you've made appearances in the past to talk about, uh, um, you know, statues, uh, removal of Civil War statues right on television. Yes, I have. I, you know, in, in the summer of 2020, when we saw all these Confederate statues came down, I was on BBC, I was on Al Jazeera, you know, I was, you know, did public radio stuff because a lot of people wanted to talk about Black protest being central to these statues coming down. And I'm always hammering home, like, yes, we need to understand the history of the lost cause, and that's really important, but we need to understand the history of Black Americans opposing these things and what that means, because that gets us to understanding this moment, why statues came down in that moment. So I've been, yeah, I did a lot of talks <laughs> last year about that, um, because I think people were really interested in learning this longer history, that this wasn't something that just sprouted out of the ground in 2020, that this is part of a very, very long legacy locally and, and nationally of, of African-Americans pushing back against, you know, elements of the lost cause. 
And final question, have to bring it back to Jeopardy. Was this the coolest <laughs> nerd thing you've ever done? <laughs> Absolutely. Everyone knows I'm a nerd. I'm, I'm very dorky. Um, and it was. I think Jeopardy has such a wide audience that, like, it's so mainstream that you have people from very different backgrounds, you know, just watching Jeopardy. I heard that it's the most watched non-sports programming yeah. on TV. That's what I read this week. Uh, and, you know, that should just tell you that, you know, if you're going to do something like this nerdy and it's like this mainstream, yeah, I think it's probably it's probably the coolest thing you could do, maybe. <laughs> Ashley, thanks for being here. Ashley Lauren Sanders is an assistant professor of African-American history at the University of Colorado Boulder. She competed on a special Jeopardy professors tournament this week. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Many young people are hurting right now, especially black boys. Experts say they don't feel seen, heard, or valued, and that can lead to despair and violence. On the heels of several youth shootings in Aurora, some young people came together in Denver last weekend to learn tools to get them on a path of hope. Here's CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine. Some of the youth here say at their schools, kids seem different now after a pandemic year that closed classrooms. They say some don't know how to communicate. Their heads are always in their phones. Others say kids seem more aggressive, get upset easier. This 14-year-old attends middle school in Aurora. I got caught with a knife at school because I didn't feel safe. The teen, who CPR News is not identifying, says he doesn't feel safe anywhere he goes. But kids at school can trigger him. People don't act right in school. They don't have any morals or respect. And then when you come across a person like me who has respect and morals for other people, they don't like it, so they don't like me for no reason. I'm kind of a target. He says he likes to fight a lot and has tried to change, but... I feel like I'm slipping off. I'm slowly becoming what they so-called a menace to society. The boy sought guidance Saturday at a Youth Gun Violence Awareness and Suicide Prevention Wellness Weekend. He was one of 20 black youth seeking skills and techniques to cope with unresolved trauma and other feelings like anger, sadness, and anxiety that lead to violence and suicide. Facilitators from three nonprofit groups, From the Heart Enterprises, the Crowley Foundation, and the Apprentice of Peace Youth Organization say young people really don't know who they are. A lot of our youth are, they're not in tune with themselves. Facilitator Dominique Lawrence. You know, they don't know how to deal with emotion. They don't know how to deal with heartbreak, frustration, anger. So this exercise was really built just to get them to slow down and really convey their thoughts on paper to, to different questions in different scenarios. Kids were isolated at home for the past year, making anger and sadness worse. The group, young and older men, talk about why anger builds up. Some talked about fathers who weren't there or men in the family who mentally or physically abuse them and the pain and hurt that causes. The culture teaches men, especially black men, to be silent. Facilitator Xavier Perez. Having an absent father in my house, it really came down to how to be a man in this world. And then in the society that we live in, it was pretty hard to navigate in situations when it came to like anger. Facilitators told youth that holding on to anger and sadness can turn into violence, self-harm, substance use, and despair. The goal of the event was to help youth find a path where hope, 
not hurt, drives their future. Youth attended breakout sessions on how to build self-esteem. Today is the day that you take back the power over your life. In his session on self-esteem, facilitator Elijah Renee teaches a group of boys how to name a negative emotion. Like one kid says, I'm never doing anything right. They talk about how to change that into a positive statement. And as they're able to identify it with the word, they're able to have a plan on how to combat or how to further encourage and amplify that emotion that they're experiencing, if it's a good one. Other sessions teach the boys how to build a wellness toolbox, naming activities that uplift them. 16-year-old Andre Coleman has been getting mentoring from From the Heart, where he learned Tai Chi. It, it just helped me so much. I used to fight all the time. And then after that, I learned how to, you know, calm down and use my body to let it flow, let my breath flow. So I'm still learning my tempo now, but... I learned how to control it. 17-year-old Alex Carter says the sessions reinforced what he likes to do to give himself a boost, be in nature. When you put your feet in grass, it makes you, it makes you feel good. It makes you, it makes you feel healthy. It makes you feel like you're one with Earth. But regardless of where the young people are or what they're feeling, they took the first step by showing up to Saturday's meeting. They walked away armed with lists of things they like to do to feel better and who they can turn to for support. One thing several teens talked about was what it felt like to see other black men who opened up to them. Here's the 14-year-old we started the story with. It feels good. Nowadays, people can't do that. I mean, I still can't do it, but it feels good to have other people talk to you. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. And that's our show with thanks to our team. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Nathan Heffel with special thanks to Nancy Lawholm. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.